You're listening to audio from Church of the Incarnation. To donate to our ministry or find out more, please visit incarnationcfl.com. Well, good morning. Anybody get their Red Rider BB gun for Christmas, huh? Gonna shoot your eye out with that, kid. Oh, man. Actually, I thought for just a hot second, I thought about getting my kids a BB gun for Christmas, but then I remembered what I did with them when I was a child. <laughs> I thought, eh, let me not do that. <laughs> I like the birds in my neighborhood. I want them to live. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, it's, it is still very much Christmas in the Episcopal Church. You knew that, right? There are 12 days of this. Christmas started yesterday. This is day two of Christmas. Don't take your tree down yet. I know it's all brown, but maybe it's taking itself down. All the leaves are just falling down, the needles. But uh, it's still Christmas in the Anglican Church, and so uh, we're going to think about Christmas things. In fact, this week and next week, we're thinking about the Incarnation. That's that's what Christmas is all about. This is a a churchy word, so let me unpack it for you. Incarnation. It, It is the mystery of God wrapping himself in human flesh. It's actually the namesake of our church. Look, there's a banner right there to prove it. Did you know that? That's the name of the church you've been coming to, Incarnation? And so this is actually the, the feast of our church calendar year. This, this Sunday is supposed to be sort of the festival day of our church year. We're, we're supposed to remind ourselves of who we are as a church. And we named ourselves Church of the Incarnation. And what that means is we are a church who glories in, rehearses, recognizes, celebrates that God did not just remain out there. He came and dwelt among us says a lot about who he is, so we're going to drive into that for two weeks. And uh, we're going to do it with the Gospel of John this morning, which is very much an incarnation text. So if you got your bulletins, that's where we're at, John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 18. Uh, I'm just going to read the first couple verses of this, talk about them. <clears throat> In the beginning, well, that's a trippy way to start this book, huh? In the beginning... God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right, I want to I unpack this term here that's translated Word in John chapter 1. The, the Word there that's translated Word in English is the, is the Greek term Logos, okay? L-O-G-O-S. Now, here, here's what logos means. It, it was a Greek philosophical term. Okay, This is John trying to unpack the idea of God in a way that the Greek philosophical mystics of his culture would appreciate and understand. Okay, Logos is a philosophical term. It doesn't just mean a, a, a utterance or something that's spoken. Okay, It's used to describe not just a thought. So we hear a word, we think thought. right? We hear a word, we think statement. We hear a word, we think concept. But that's not the essence of logos. Logos is the thing behind the thought or statement or concept. Logos, in a Greek sense, is the essence, the bigger reality behind thoughts, statements, or concepts. It's a way to say God in a Greek philosophical worldview. It's, the, it's a way to say there's something behind everything that you see, everything you experience, 
everything that you are. There's something steering the ship of consciousness. There's something behind every thought that you have. There's something behind every encounter that takes place in your life. All right, and I want you to hear the way John unpacks this. In the beginning was the word. It's the same way that Old Testament begins, right? In a Hebrew sense, in the beginning God, right? John just does it in sort of this Greek way. In beginning, in the beginning is the essence behind everything you experience and everything you are. Well, Hebrews just sort of lay it out there more plainly. In the beginning, God. And I want you to think about, Francis Schaeffer says, the 20th century, probably the most famous 20th century philosopher, he says that that's the most pregnant line in all of Scripture, the most loaded with meaning line in all of Scripture. In the beginning, God. There's a God behind all that you are, all you see, and all you experience. And what John's going to tell us in the next few verses, and this is what I want to talk about this morning, is that God that's behind everything is a person. And you're like, oh, yeah, duh, person, God's a person, I know that. Well, really? I, I mean, it, it's, it's so obvious that I think it deserves a few moments to think about the implications of that, that God, who is behind all that we see, all that we are, everything we say, all that we do, is a person, a person who wants to have a personal relationship with you. John starts describing this logos in personal pronouns. Look in verse 2. He, that's person. Not, not sort of mystical God in some vague, unknown sense out there. No, no, okay, so we're talking about a personal God. I want you to think about this for a minute. Is your vision of God personal? When you think about God, what do you think about? Do you think about a something or a someone? Okay, that's a, that is an interesting mental trip to go on. Is your vision of God this sort of vague something out there? Like, yeah, there's some God out there. I couldn't tell you what it is. Couldn't tell you what it's about. I mean, some people say, and this comes from Francis Schaeffer. He says, look, if your vision of God is that he's everywhere but undefinable, then God is nowhere. If your vision of God is, oh, yeah, God's in the trees, God's in the air, God's in the water, God's all around us. Okay, well, tell me about that God. Can you define that God? Can you, can you, can you distill it down to something quantifiable and definable, if your answer is no, then you probably don't have a God. You have this vague somethingness that you're terming God. But it's not the God of Scripture. I'll tell you why. Because the God of Scripture makes himself very fully and completely and even finitely an infinite God, known through the very person of Jesus. He, in verse 2, was in the beginning. That's a personal pronoun. If you want to write it down, it's otos. O-U-T-O-S. It sounds like this. Hotas in Greek. It is a nominative masculine pronoun. Singular. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3. All things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. And who are we talking about here? We're talking about God, the person of Jesus. And how do we know that? If you got your Bible, skip down to verse 14. So this Logos, don't miss the implications of this. This It's it's so fundamental that we just 
jump through it without quickly thinking about it. This logos, remember the word, the word, it's what John's going to say in John 1.14, and the word, this logos, the essence, the God essence behind everything that you are and all that you have and every thought you have and everything that exists becomes a person. The word logos, John says in verse 14, becomes flesh, becomes definable, quantifiable, seeable, touchable, knowable. God, the person, becomes personal. All right, verse 14, there's another word here that I just want you to understand. The, the word became flesh. That term became flesh in John 1, 14 is the Greek word sarcosis. Does that sound like any English word, sarcosis? It's where we get the English word sarcophagus. Everyone know where that comes from? What's a sarcophagus? It's a flesh box. <laughs> I mean, that's what it is. Like you die, we stick you in a sarcophagus, a flesh box, and bury you. Now think about the implication for that in terms of the incarnation. That God who is eternal, creator of everything, the essence behind all things, puts himself intentionally in a flesh box. For Jesus, oh man, this is huge. This one blows my mind. The moment of his birth was also the moment of his suffering and death. The incarnation, the the moment that God himself wraps himself in human flesh, he's committed himself to a trajectory that can and must only end in death, his own death. He's flesh boxed himself. The same flesh box that you and I are going to live in one day. At least these physical bodies. The one who created the perfect world and then watched humanity ruin it with sin is willing to enter into that world knowing that it would cost him suffering, pain, sadness, and death himself. Can you just grasp the the mystery and power in that for a minute? Let's just wade into the implications of that. Uh, God himself identifies with every part of your life and my life that's inconvenient, uncomfortable, unglamorous, wretched, broken, frustrating, and dead. And the text tells us that if you've got your Bibles, look at John chapter 1, verse 10, the few verses before. He was in the world, it's talking about the Logos, Jesus, but the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. Like, God knows what it's like to be ignored, misunderstood, rejected. And here's what I want you to think about the incarnation, that God entered into that willfully. He made a choice to do that. All right, listen to this quote from Augustine. This is a trip, right? Third century church theologian. This is a very un-Tom-like sermon, isn't it? I'm like quoting philosophers and stuff. Don't I sound smart? Wow. Come on, somebody laugh. Come on now. I'm trying to impress you. Okay, listen to this from Augustine. None of us 
is born because he wills. Like you weren't, you weren't born because you willed it. You're not here because you decided to be here. But God is. Jesus, the only person to be born of his own will. Think about that. <laughs> None of us is born because he wills. But he, born when he would and how he would. So Augustine says, you're not born, you didn't choose to be born in central Florida to a family that, in this economic condition. and that. Think about the circumstances of your own birth. You didn't choose that. But God is born when he would and how he would. He, he, he intentionally and decidedly is born the way he's born. You got to ask why. Now think about this. Gregory of Nyssa, I'm going to give you another quote. Gregory of Nyssa, a 4th century bishop who was like a big shot in the Christian fight against Arianism. That's probably another sermon. He says this. Now think about this. If God had the power to save humanity by fiat, in other words, to just say, humanity is fixed, right? He's up in heaven, wherever that is, and he just looks down without entering into it and says, I fixed it. If God had the power to save humanity by fiat, by simple sovereign act, why then did he take the tedious, circuitous route, submitting to a bodily nature, entering life through birth, and finally tasting death? I mean, this is so embedded in the Christian story that we don't question that God could have done it the way he wanted to. I mean, I remember the first time I had this thought with like sunsets. I'm sitting watching a sunset. I'm like, God, you're awesome. Because you came up with the idea of sunsets. Because let me tell you how I would have done it. Like a light switch. (laughs) You ever think about that? If you're just like, imagine if the world was created that way. You're like, oh gosh, it's 6.02, everyone. Lights go off at 6.03. Everyone get inside quick. Bam, and it's dark. I mean, that's a weird reality to live in. I mean, we take take sunsets for granted that God gives us because we need this time he gives you like 30 minutes warning it's going to be dark soon idiot right light your candles and stuff he gives us some time he eases into this and and you think about it with the incarnation like he could have done this however he wanted why did he take this as Gregory of Nyssa says circuitous route and here's what he says right this is Gregory of Nyssa's answer because goodness communicates itself and the greatest good communicates in the greatest way. I think, what's good about the incarnation? The Psalms. You read the Psalms and you think, "What what a train wreck of emotional despair that is, right? Until you start thinking, oh my goodness, there's never a Psalm that I could pray to God that he hasn't prayed already. You read some of these psalms? I mean, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Anyone ever been in that spot where you're like, God, where are you? What are you doing? What are you doing in my life? Why is this happening to me? I don't like it. I don't want it. Didn't will it. And part of what Gregory and is saying about this greatest good communicating himself in the greatest way is that God sort of fires back as you're praying. Your heart is praying that psalm to him and goes, hey, man, I got a grip on that one. I understand what it's like not know why this is happening 
that's happening around you. I understand what that's like. I can identify with that. Man, what a good God we have to, to intentionally enter into that so that we can have somebody personal, that's what I'm trying to say, personal to relate to within it. And if that's not your vision of God, you are missing it. You are missing the joy and the benefit of the incarnation. If you have a God who, when you get in this place where you're really a mess, you have to hide that from him because he's some like in the sky Zeus, like greater than thou, sort of holy man who has, whose feet are not on the ground. You've got to sort of hide your real self from him. And you're missing out on the incarnation. Make him a personal God and put him right in the middle of your suffering. I love this verse 14. Look, the word we've been talking about, the word, I just want to unpack one more word here and the implications of it. The word became flesh, so sarcosis, sarcophagized himself, right? And here's another word, lived among us. Okay, that word lived among us. You need to understand the implications of this word. What is John telling us about Jesus? The word lived among us is the Greek word eskenosin. Eskenosin is spelled just like it sounds. And it means pitched a tent. This God who was Lord of the cosmos, who, who didn't have to come and do this, wraps himself in the same flesh, bo- flesh box you have and then says, let's go camping. And does that remind you of part of Israel's story in the Old Testament? When was the last time that God camped out with his people? It's the tabernacle. In fact, the Greek translation of your Hebrew Old Testament is called the Septuagint. uses this word, eskinosin, all through the Pentateuch for the tabernacle. When John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, what he's, he's using the same word intentionally. This word wrapped, this, this logos, here, read it correctly, this essence behind all things intentionally wraps himself in the same broken flesh box that you have and then says, let's go camping. And, 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 and chooses to dwell in your midst. So what is God saying about his character there? Here's what he's saying. He's saying the same thing he was saying to the Israelites in the Old Testament with the tabernacle. That God wants to put his presence right in the middle of his people. He wants to journey with you. Think about the story of Exodus and Numbers. He wants to lead you. It was, it was this tabernacle that was to lead the Israelites through all their stages of journeying in the wilderness. He wants to provide for you. He wants to be the light in your presence. Well, that reminds me of something John just said about Jesus. And he wants to give you full access to his presence. Everywhere that you go. All right, this is the last thing I want to say. We'll come back and do more of it next week. Think about this. I think the fact that the Logos wrapped himself in flesh and tabernacled among us is supposed to say this to us, that relationship with God is God's number one agenda for your life. I think about that. Personal relationship with the Logos of the universe is, is the thing of first importance for God and you. That's what he's after more than anything else. 
the Logos, the essence of God, the thing behind everything else, puts himself in human flesh, says, I can be known and I want to know you. Let's go camping together. All right. I believe that to know God is also the highest calling of humanity. It's mankind's highest purpose. And here's the last thing I want to say. If that is not on your top ten list for what your life is about, then no wonder you're always frustrated. Did you hear me? I'm going to say it again. If God's number one purpose for your life is to tabernacle with you, to go everywhere you go, and to know you intimately as a person, if that's his number one agenda for your life, if it's not even on your top ten, no wonder you're just ticked off all the time, especially ticked off at him, because you have a competing agenda. Well, God, my number one purpose is to be happy. Well, God's number one purpose is to know you. God, my number one purpose is to be wealthy. Well, God's number one purpose for you is to know you. My number one purpose is to get everything I want when I want it. Well, God's number one purpose for your life is to tabernacle with you. So I think what we should be asking God is, God, not why have you done this to me, or God, but instead, God, what am I becoming through this moment together? Right? We spend a lot of time asking God, God, why have you done this to me? When you're asking that kind of question, God, why have you done this to me? You're just right away admitting that you've got a competing agenda with this God whose purpose is to do nothing more than know you. Why have you done this to me, God? And I think what the incarnation says is, God, he, he wraps himself in the same flesh you have. He comes alongside you and says, well, come on, let's do it together. Right? So God, where, where are we headed in this? What are you doing in me? Where are you taking me through this? Is a much better question to ask. That's an incarnation question. And that was not going to lead you to despair. All right. Please stand with me. Thanks for listening. Would you like to connect with our church? Join us online or in person every week at 9 and 11 a.m. Visit incarnationcfl.com to learn more. Have a great week.